Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hello, and welcome to The Beacon Podcast. I'm Margaret Gardner, your host for today's discussion on how and why nonprofits should collaborate to increase their impact. Our guest today is a fundraising icon, Kay Sprinkle Grace. Let me tell you a little bit about Kay. She is a fundraising consultant, author, and international speaker who works with nonprofits on major giving, strategic development planning, board engagement, capital campaigns, and the creation of mission, vision, value, and case statements. Kay founded her own consulting business, Transforming Philanthropy, in 1990, after 10 years as a development director for three nonprofit organizations. In 2020, she received the AFP Golden Gate Chapter Lifetime Achievement Award and the Fundraising Professional of the Year Award from AFP Global. Welcome, Kay. We are so happy to have you with us here today. Well, I'm just delighted to be here and happy new year. It certainly is, has arrived with, I'm in San Francisco and it's arrived with a lot of rain, which is the most welcome thing a new year could bring. So thank you. Happy new year to you too. So I know that the topic of collaboration is something you're passionate about. So can you tell us to start off with, why is it important for nonprofits to consider collaborating with other organizations? It is very important because we are donor-centered as a sector, and for donors, the confusion that arises when they want to give to a particular cause, and they go on the web, and they see that there are 14 organizations dealing with that issue in the same modestly-sized town, it is confusing to donors. And how do we sort out, then, how they choose. And to me, it seems that our purpose is not to proliferate organizations, but to solve problems. And I believe that what we need to do is take a hard look at whether we are really solving the problem or are we serving the problem. And there is a distinction, and that's not an original idea with me. My dear friend, Ken Burnett, who wrote Donor-Centered Fundraising, he advanced that idea many, many years ago that we often continue to serve the problem to preserve our organizations rather than teaming up with other organizations to solve the problem. So I come at it from two perspectives, Margaret. One is the confusion that we put in the minds of our donors. And the second is that we really do need to solve the problems in our society. We're a fabulous culture. People just look at us. I work so much internationally, and they are marvel at how the American people respond. But you know what? We respond better when it's a disaster. Now, you're from a part of the world that gets hurricanes, and I'm in a part of the world that gets earthquakes. And wow, you just give me a hurricane or an earthquake, and we have got hundreds of thousands of donors who rush in. But They don't stay because we are very crisis oriented. And yet oftentimes organizations proliferate at these times to address these crises. What happens is, and Haiti is a very good example, with earthquake and hurricane in almost adjacent years, I think there was one year between the devastation of both, nobody started or attached to an organization that was going to solve the problem of housing that would not withstand either of these natural disasters. Instead, they poured the relief aid in there and then they were done. What we need to do as a 
very philanthropic country, is to say, when does a crisis become chronic? And how do we as a sector address that crisis with organizations that are focused on solutions and partnering and collaboration? So one of the best examples of a collaboration uh, had to, was in a neighboring city of yours, New Orleans. And when Katrina hit, there were at that time, I think there were seven different organizations dealing with the AIDS crisis. And because New Orleans lost a third of its population, among whom were some of their biggest donors, but it did not affect the population of people with AIDS as much as in terms of reduction of numbers, it tended to stay pretty constant. And so the head of the largest of these organizations, which was is called No AIDS, as in New Orleans AIDS, got the others together and said, let's work together. You provide food, you provide research, you do the things you do, I do the things that we do. Let's come together and sort this out and see how we can work together to really care for these people who have been left behind and who still need our services. And eventually it became one organization, which is called No AIDS. Now, there may be other organizations that have come along since, but to me, it was just a stunning example of how the, you can focus on the problem and come up with an organization that will be more effective than a proliferation of organizations. So that's a long answer to your first question. I promise not to do that for the rest of the morning. It was a necessarily long answer. So thank you for that. So I, I'd imagine that seems like a very good idea, but it, I, I'd imagine that organizations may have some fears about going into collaboration with other organizations. And branding, of course, in the nonprofit sector is a huge issue. So how do organizations retain their own brand if they're collaborating or partnering with other organizations? That's a great question. And branding has become very important. I've been in this field long enough to remember when branding was like an alien concept. Nonprofits didn't think about branding, but now everything is about branding. I'll give you an example that is more recent. And during the pan during the first year of the pandemic, which I think was 2020, uh, it seems like those years kind of rushed together. I had been working with an organization in a small community here in California in the Sierra Nevada foothills uh, community, uh, Grass Valley and Nevada City. A very sturdy organization called the Friendship Club had been very active working with girls who needed mentoring, guidance in order to fulfill their potential. And it had been in business for a long time. It had been the Girls Friendship Club and then it just became Friendship Club. It was an ever evolving organization. There was an organization formed after Girls Friendship Club that served both boys and girls, older kids, probably 18 to 23. And it was focused mostly on kids that were unhoused or couch surfing because they had very difficult situations at home. And they provided after school programs in cooperation with the high school. And the head of the Friendship Club began having conversations with this much smaller organization that nonetheless had a complementary mission. And they began talking about merging. And so they brought me in to do this. I did all of this remotely. Uh, everything was done on Zoom. 
But I would say in many ways, we did a textbook merger in that we met with both boards. The boards were together on this. We talked through the issues of, as you say, uh, the branding, what would happen to the branding of the smaller organization. They agreed that it was more important to serve these young people and that they would be listed as a program of the larger organization. And we looked at the issues that arise in mergers. I've done enough mergers, Margaret, to know that one of the toughest things is also the softest things, and that's organizational culture. That cultures that come together where one, let's say, is very businesslike and one is very kind of loving hands at home, you know, people who've gotten together around a particular mission or issue, and it's a more casual organization. And that was the situation here. The smaller organization was run by two women who had founded it, and there was a culture that they had and a relationship. It was not incompatible with the Friendship Club, but it was different enough that we talked through it. So we plowed through kind of the softer issues, and then we looked at the ones that are very important. In their case, it was the finances, the fundraising. But interestingly enough, and here's really a big supportive point about why collaborating or merging isn't as a big hard thing as we might think it is, is that when we did the overlay of the donor base, which is always where organizations get very clammy about doing this, we found that there were only about 20 donors that were not giving to both organizations already. And the reason is that people give to solve a problem. They follow the things that match their values. They're interested in youth in a pretty community that's very, has a huge equity gap up there in Nevada City, Grass Valley. And they were all interested in the same thing, which was making sure that young people had the opportunity to get guidance and mentoring and programs that would help them build a better future. So they did something that often is the best way to do this they decided that they would have a new name. And the new name is Bright Futures for Youth. And I encourage listeners to go on the website and you'll see that it lists the programs that comprise Bright Futures for Youth, which is Friendship Club, the the smaller organization, NEI, that was part of it. And then a third organization that was already part of the Friendship Club which is a, an organization that is funded by government funding for kids that are unhoused. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful package. All three are listed, but the new branding is Bright Futures for Youth. So the steps in the collaboration in the merger were very, so well done by everybody who they did their homework between meetings, they came back with reports and they were supposed to vote on it in September of 2020. And they had a meeting in August and decided to go forward with it. They advanced it by a month. They were so happy and excited about moving forward. What happened to the staff at the smaller organization? One of them wanted to step aside anyway, and the other one is on the staff at the new organization running that program. And donors can just give to Bright Futures for Youth and cover it all. Well, that that raises the question. I mean, my my next question was going to be how collaborating affects 
any of the organization's ability to fundraise um, for its own mission. But you mentioned that the two organizations, there were very few people who weren't giving to both. Right. So what happens then? I mean, if a donor gives $10 and $10, did that donor then give $20 to the organization? Like, like can you address the fundraising aspect sure. of that was the big question that people were asking. Well, this is all fine, as you say, but you know, we're getting $10 and you're getting $10 and are they going to cut it in half? And what has happened is that some, yes, have cut it in half. However, some have started giving much bigger gifts because they know that this is an organization that is dealing with all the issues that are so critical to this particular geographical region. The, the seed for this was planted the year before, I went up to Grass Valley, Nevada City, and we had a community gathering where we looked at what were the social issues, the community issues that were standing in the way of these two communities really thriving. And one of them was the issue of youth that seemed disconnected from their future, if you will which is how the name Bright Futures for Youth, I think, was kind of the, the seed was planted. And it had to do with poverty and it had to do with a large percentage of unhoused people. And as we worked through it in this half day session, uh, using a, a process which is, is design thinking, you know, what, what is the issue? What they came up with was that whatever they did, they had to focus on the youth because and then that became the basis for this very wonderful CEO of the Friendship Club to say, let's work together and see if we can come up with this. And she worked with a larger group. Uh, there are other youth organizations that are not allied because they don't deal with the same youth. In other words, there are other organizations that deal with arts for youth. And, that, and they're all trying to work together peripherally. But these two organizations, you know, decided to come together completely. And what was the messaging like to the donors around the merger and, and all of the changes? It was so upbeat. It was so exciting that donors thought, why not? Why didn't we do this a long time ago? Because they focused on the fact that this, in fact, reduced administrative costs, because instead of running two organizations, you were running one. And that the the mission was in fact, not only intact, it was enhanced by the fact that the presence of this other organization had also encouraged Friendship Club to consider, for instance, having a boys group that they'd never had before, a similar mentoring program for boys, not just for girls. So there's been a, a lot of porous synergy. And I mean, this is not the only merger that I've done. I did a hospital foundation merger. I did a merger of two wildlife rescue organizations in uh, Northern California. And every time, yes, Margaret, there are bumps at the beginning. And there are people who want to say, well, I signed up for this organization. And yet what happens ultimately is that they see that they are advancing so much more effectively on what they're trying to do in the community, that it makes all kinds of sense to streamline. I look upon it as streamlining. And can you talk about the difference between, if you're talking about organizations collaborating and merging, they're 
uh, clearly they're two different things. Can, right. can you talk about that process, that decision-making process and, and just what happens next? When two organizations talk about collaborating, what they mean is that they're just going to maintain their own programming, et cetera. They're not going to merge administratively, but they're going to look at what each is doing and look at complementing it so that the range of activities or programs offered by the two organizations covers a broader swath of the population than just the one. It usually means that the two organizations will have maybe an overlapping programming committee or an overlapping strategic planning so that one is not duplicating the efforts of the other. However, what happens is that the more they work together, the more they realize that there is redundancy. And I'll give you an example. When years and years ago, in fact, I didn't get this contract. That's how long ago it was. I was asked by a group of environmental organizations, all community focused. So nothing national, nothing statewide, all community focused. And one of them was into green places and one was into the protecting the creek that you know, ran through the town. And there were five all together and they were under one roof. They were in the same building. And I met with them and I said, well, I don't understand why you are five separate organizations. I said, well, well, you know, well, we do, we do the green space and they do this and that. And I said, but if I were to work with you, I said, I would want to bring you together with one administration so that you cut your overhead and can put much more money into uh, maintaining the beauty of this community. Well, I was out of there so fast, you know, they practically got those cartoons, you know, where they're throwing your paperwork after you as you leave the door. I met a woman involved with one of the organizations about six years later, and she didn't know me. I, I, she was not present at that meeting. And I said, so tell me about, you know, your organization. Well, she said, you know, we were five different environmental organizations and we got this idea about coming together. And now we have one administration we've cut. And I thought, really? Okay, that's good. So there is that sense of losing the identity. And yet your true identity comes from your capacity to really solve a problem or at least advance towards the solution. In my community here, we have an area of our city that has been, frankly, quite neglected over the years. And in fact, we have two areas. And wherever we can come together to try to advance the solution of these problems, we try to do it. And yet I still see the proliferation of organizations that are trying to do the same thing and they're running into each other. And years ago, the United Way, this is, I'm talking now 20 some years ago, the United Way tried an experiment that I was so excited about. And I got to know one of the women who was running a United Way that was part of the experiment. And it was called the New United Way. And 
what it did in communities, instead of having all these United Way agencies, you know, where everybody was scrambling for their piece of the United Way pie, the new United Way insisted that similar service providers in a community get together as what, at what they called tables. So you might be at the youth table, you could be at the table for programs for the aging, you could be at the arts and culture table, et cetera. The idea was that at that table, those organizations would decide which was the highest priority in their community and how each could contribute to it. And it meant that some wouldn't get United Way funding because they would not be in that particular area of the band that was going to be focused on, but that other organizations would carry forth with that purpose. And they discontinued it. Uh, There was a new administration came in at the United Way and they said, oh, no, 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 that's not United Way. United Way means we have all these United Way agencies and they do what they want with the money. Anyway, and I've always thought it was such a missed opportunity. And because ultimately it gets down to the donor, Margaret, and the donor, I know from all my decades of work, there's one principle that is absolutely irrefutable and continues from decade to decade, and that is this, that people are drawn to issues, and issues are based in values. So we have values, we find the issues that we want to fund, and increasingly, people don't fund organizations. They fund the issue that the organization is working on. And you only have to go to a, a play or a, or a concert in your community or both and see that people who support the arts support all the arts. And people who have been impacted by cancer or by heart disease tend to support several organizations that are doing different things about this. So what we do when we kind of focus on the organization is that we're forgetting that's not what the donor is looking for. The donor is looking for what is the issue that's behind this? What am I solving? Uh, Ann Walstead, who you probably uh, know of, she's somebody I admire so much, who just stepped down as chair of the, or as head of BoardSource, which is such an amazing organization. And she wrote a kind of a farewell article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review uh, a year ago called Purpose Driven or Organization Driven. And she draws the difference between organizations that are purpose driven. In other words, their mission is always out there in front of them, which says that offers to collaborate or merge if it advances the mission would be what they would pursue, as opposed to organization-driven organizations who are more concerned about how to keep their organization intact, even if collaborating or merging with another organization would solve the problem more quickly. So it's a really, um, as I think a, a a great writer said in the 70s, it is a yeasty topic because there is a lot to it, a lot to it. Do you think that I just have one more quick question because we are coming to the end of our time together? But is there, do you think that there is such a thing as a organizational ego that stands in the way of this kind of collaboration 
and merger. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, that's that's a huge insight, uh, Margaret, <laughs> because that's exactly what stands in the way. And if I may say, often, you know, it's hard for an organization to have an ego, but the people who run the organization, it's their identity. It is ego, but it's also identity. It's also their their connection. And we get executive directors who stay with organizations a very long time and or who founded the organization. And sometimes the inability to either merge or collaborate or move on is tied up with that that ego. And of course, we all want to be admired as the best organization providing a particular service. But where is our will to reach out to the other organizations and say, I like what you're doing. Have you ever thought how it might become a part of our larger and more successful organization? You know, we are reaching X number of people. With you, we could reach even more. And, but that doesn't happen. I did just one final little story. Years ago, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation funded a colleague and and me to do a collaborative fundraising program that had two purposes. One was to raise money and the other was to increase awareness of the issue of domestic violence. And interestingly enough, you know, we were in this community, there were three organizations, uh, three different organizations. There were two shelters, two women's shelters. And then there was a third organization that was for women who had come out of shelters who had children. And it was a safe house for them with their children. And the three organizations came together. Oh, they were so excited, you know, because Packard Foundation was sponsoring this. It had a huge media buy that they had done from the um, from a large organization that did media relative to domestic violence. And it was going to be just great. So we got together and we had the memorandum of understanding, the MOU, that the money raised would be divided equally among the three. Great. Okay. And some other things. So then came the next meeting where I said, we will have to see your donor list because we don't want to duplicate the mailing. And this was the days of snail mail, of direct mail. It was before we did emailings. And one of the organizations said, oh, well, you can't have our donor list. Uh, no, you can't have our donor list. Uh, we'll do the mailing for our, ours. And we said, there is no ours. This is about the three of you. Well, then we won't participate. Okay. And then one of the organizations, which had larger donors than any of the other two, said, well, we're kind of concerned, you know, because some of the biggest donors are really our donors. And we said, you know, here's the deal is that what we want to do is spread the wealth with this. And so therefore, a large donor to you, that money is still going to be divided because everybody will understand that this is three organizations that are addressing the same issue. Well, they were okay with that. So anyway, we went forward with it. It was very successful. And then it came time to divide the money. And that lar- that organization that had the large donors looked at the donor list and said, oh, well, that, that's our donor. So we get that. That's our donor. So we get that. And we said, no, the MOU says that that money is divided. So it was so successful that Packard asked if we would do it again. And the organizations were simply not interested. So there I give you the downside of this. 
is that as we all struggle to serve and to get the validation that comes from results that we know that we have generated, there is this reluctance to give that up in favor of saying, could we be more effective if we join together with other organizations so that we could increase our impact, increase the number of people we serve, and reduce those costs that do drain an organization from being able to put all the money, you know, the more of the money into the mission. Hey, this has been such a great discussion and and brings up so many things that organizations can think about. Is there anything else that you'd like to add quickly before we say goodbye? I would just say that we need to think about how we can come together because we are the most vibrant sector. We are the solution sector. We are the ones, the philanthropic sector, we're the ones that every day make a difference that is so extraordinary. Two people walking side by side can really, you know, clear a lot more territory than one person in a single, people single file. So let's think about how we can work together, how we can identify the chronic issues in our communities. Crisis, we're very good at but chronic, we've got to solve the issue of the unhoused, the food insecurity. We're the most abundant nation in the world, and we should not be having these issues around the horrible lack of equity. And one way to bridge that equity is to say, as a sector, what can we do together to make this an even more amazing place? than it already is. How can we address these issues? So that's my fervent hope, Margaret, in the new year. And I, interestingly enough, I'm working on a situation right now where we are encouraging a merger and we're really excited about it. And every time I do one of these, I am renewed in my belief that people working together are so much more effective than people working by themselves. Okay, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here with us and hope we can talk to you again in the future. For our listeners, you can connect with Kay on LinkedIn and learn more about her at kgrace.org, K-A-Y-G-R-A-C-E.org. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Margaret Gardner, and we hope to see you next time on The Beacon Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Tune in every week for nonprofit topics with special guest interviews. Suggest future topics and learn more about upcoming podcasts and guests at lighthousecouncil.com.